Hello and welcome to the Becoming Podcast. I am your host, Anne Fancy, and I'm excited that you're here and listening. The intention and the inspiration behind this podcast is simply to continue conversations that I've had on the map with students over the years. Conversations of growth and evolution, of peeling back the layers of conditioning, and really learning to listen, look, hear, and become more aware of our own innate gifts, stories, talents, and really the highs, the lows, the in-betweens that led us on this path that we now are walking. So I hope you choose to listen and subscribe as we continue conversations both with inspiring humans and also just with me chatting with you. I so appreciate you taking the time today to listen and look forward to future talks. chat a little bit about this idea of learning to master um, different states of being. And what I mean by that is this. I decided to start Instagramming more lately. I like finally welcome me to 2019 or maybe welcome me to 2012. I just wasn't on it and understanding it then. But I'm finally starting to get the draw with Instagram, um, at least in a personal way. I don't take beautiful photos. I don't pretend to. um, But I do love the community it creates. Anyway, one of the things that I love doing is just finding powerful quotes and re-sharing them or finding my own and sharing them. And the other day I posted, um, before I went to go teach my yoga class, I posted this quote, one of the best lessons you can learn in life is to master how to remain calm. Pretty great. I mean, we can appreciate that, right? That that learning to remain calm um, is much of what the work we're doing in life, right? So I always talk about in yoga that part of the work of finding your edge in yoga is to recognize the behaviors that happen um, in your own being, on your mat, in your mind, when you're not remaining calm, and or when you're being pushed. What do you do? I mean, most of us, our first instinct when we're getting really uncomfortable is not just simply to take some deep breaths and remain calm. Most of us have a very strong reaction, and likely a reaction that was created um, and necessary when you were really young. I don't know anyone who was taught... Kind of sounds sad, but I, I really don't know anyone who was taught super healthy coping strategies as a kid. I mean, maybe a few of my friends were, but most of us, our parents were blind to what their own issues were and doing their very best, just as we are now doing our very best. And this understanding of how to parent has changed greatly. So my point is, most of us, because of life and the challenges we faced as a kid, were offered opportunities to create maladaptive coping strategies. And that's just what worked, right? So when we get pushed now in our grown-up adult life, we're on a big old habit loop of falling back into those same behavior patterns. I'm reading and listening to the book, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. I'll link it in the comments here or in the um, commentary. And This book is really powerful, but he talks so much about the habit of the mind, right? I don't know anyone whose initial state before doing this introspective work that the habit of their mind was to to stay calm. And if they were staying calm, it was probably more from a place of staying calm um, as as an escape, like that they'd armored up, and not that they were actually calm, present, alert, to the situation. So I post this on Instagram and like immediately within, I swear, 
less than a minute, I get a comment from someone in my inbox who direct messaged me that said, I saw your post. How do I remain calm when I know that my 18-year-old twins are out at a party and they're drinking, likely drinking, and that I'm not sure if they're going to have a DD on the way home? How do I not freak out? How do I remain calm? And I was like, oh, shit, right? It's all really good in theory. It's really great in theory that I'm going to remain calm uh, when I'm on my yoga mat. I'm going to remain calm when everything's going peachy and I feel like I'm winning parenting and my relationship is steady and I like my job and I've got enough money in the bank. It's all really easy to stay calm when the environment is just as you like it to be. But it is not so easy to remain calm when things that are out of your control um, are very present. I told her in a message after I really talked it out in yoga, my first reaction is, I probably am not going to remain calm at first. When I get to the point of parenting where I have a teenager making decisions on her own, I am not going to pretend for a second that I'm going to be able to remain calm and not freak out. I'm going to freak out probably first and panic and worry and wonder and obsess and not sleep. I'm pretty sure that that will be my human experience of things. But in truth, I've had a lifetime of studying anxiety because my anxiety started when I was very, very young. I was two or three years old. And uh, by the way, at two or three years old, it shows up as stomach aches and headaches. I called them stomach eggs and headaches. But I was really tiny when I first started having physical symptoms of what we now know to be mood disorder stuff. Um, My mother was clinically depressed my whole life, and um, I'm sure that my little sensitive self could sense that. But who knows why I brought anxiety into this world. Truth be told, I believe a large part of that was uh, past life stuff. That will save that conversation perhaps for another time. But I absolutely had anxiety from a very young age. And by the time I was eight, it was pretty debilitating anxiety, separation anxiety specifically. Um, But it manifested in many different ways. I would sit up at the top of the stairs as a little kid before bed, panicking about whatever the topic was. Um, It probably started with like, you know, dentistry in kindergarten they came in with those red pellets that you chewed and you could see the plaque and they scared you about cavities and they were trying to scare you into better dental hygiene I'm pretty sure that backfired for me and it scared me into panicking about cavities in general and what that meant who who knew that at that point I would have uh, a million cavities in my life because I was blessed with uh, some not so awesome teeth but all is well Um, and it went from cavities to worrying about Um, fire safety, because they'd also come in and educate you about having a safe spot to meet outside your house, and how are you going to get out of your window, and do you have an escape plan, right? All really well and good to teach kids those things, but sensitive kids like myself, I didn't need help worrying about things. And now you put really big, scary things into my mind, and I panicked. I remember my dad sitting up at night and telling me we didn't have a ladder to throw out the window like they said we needed to have, and that I needed to uh, figure out how I was going to get out. And my dad and I would open the window and look out and see how far the bushes were to jump, and he'd assure me that I jump off of the swing set and I jump off of things all the time. I was a gymnast as a little kid and that I would be able to manage that jump. So 
we had a plan, so to speak, but it didn't really stop me from panicking. I was scared of ghosts. I was scared of burglars. I was scared of what I remember thinking were elves walking around in my bedroom. I was scared of what was underneath the bed. And then eventually it turned into the real fear of separation anxiety. And I would panic really anytime um, I was afraid of away from home for too long or that my worst was that my parents were away from home too long. And that was just a commonplace. I came home every day almost in second, sorry, third grade um, because of long division. And I was worried that the teacher would call on me and I wouldn't know the answer. And then I would have some sort of shame loop clearly um, that would happen from that. So there was some perfectionism built into that, that um, unwillingness to make a mistake. Anyway, all of this is to say, I've had a lot of experience with being anxious, and I know what it's like to feel anxious, and I know what it's like to live with that. And so learning to master calm really hits close to the heart for me because this is something I've been working on for a really long time, and this is something that yoga offered me in a way that was different. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't even within probably the first eight years of practicing yoga that I learned very slowly to manage my ability to withstand discomfort. And what that did for me um, is help me then manage my anxiety because anxiety is just a big discomfort, right? It's an internal stress response that creates discomfort in the physical body, emotional body, the whole being feels off kilter. And I think that learning to trust myself in moments of discomfort, I then learned to better manage my anxiety. Now, I'm not pretending that I have it down or that I don't still have plenty of shitty coping strategies, but I feel like I understand how easy it is to be freaked out and also that that creates such a habit loop. And I used to talk about anxiety like it was a drug because once I'd get the twinge of anxiety and that panic feeling, it was like once that was reintroduced to my physiology, my body would then create it more and more often, more and more easily. And it was like once I got the hit of that anxious reaction, it became really easy to continue to sustain having that feeling. So the thing that I've learned and that my mother very lovingly tried to teach me way back when was that, you know, the worrying doesn't help anything, right? She used to, my parents, I was raised religious and she used to say something to the effect of, um, do not worry for tomorrow, for every day has enough worries of its own. And I'm like, no shit. <laughs> I'm worried about today and tomorrow. I'm just being proactive. I'm worrying about all the things. So though in theory that was supposed to be helpful, like be present, right? Not fucking helpful. And she did her best. My parents had no idea how to help me. I was really anxious. They took me to doctors. Doctors said she's a sensitive kid. Don't let her watch the news also very helpful. Um, and it, that's just it. I mean, that was the best that we could do for me. So they did their best in helping me create strategies, but it wasn't until really even in the last six, seven years that I've really started to wrap my head around the reality that one, my anxiousness was an attempt to control an environment so that I felt safe. And as sensitive kids and people, I don't think we often feel safe in the world, so we come up with different strategies to feel safe. If I can predict later outcomes, if I can predict um, what's going to happen in any outcome, any variable, then perhaps I'll be more prepared, and if it does happen, I'll be ready for it. But that, but that control 
thing is such an illusion. It's a big, fat lie. You're worrying about your kids potentially out drinking, me worrying about my kid at kindergarten. None of my worrying is going to help anything. It does not change my ability or lack of ability to control anything. Everything, ultimately, is outside your control except for your experience, your ability to master calm. And people can tell you this your whole freaking life and you still are trying to manipulate and control. I have so many bad behaviors that now are just a habit that I didn't even realize I was doing or saying or using in order to give myself the illusion that I had some sense of control. So much that I was controlling just little tiny things within my relationship or saying things in a way that I would hope would create the outcome I wanted. All of that is just bad habit of old anxious behavior. And most of us have been doing it for so long, we're not awake necessarily to the ways that we function and the ways that we protect ourselves. So what I said to this mother besides, number one, I get it, freak out, is number two, I've really started to learn that my uh, uh, desire to control doesn't actually change anything. One of the most powerful quotes I ever heard was that worrying is like praying for what you don't want to happen. And now my brain is starting to acknowledge quantum physics and get a a little bit of an understanding of how energy really is magnetic. From that standpoint, I would even venture to say that your worrying, not only is it not going to actually change the outcome... If it does change the outcome in any way, it's going to change it in the direction you don't want it to change. So if your energy and your being, your electromagnetic field, if you are an energetic being and you're able to put out energy to either to attract, to magnetize things to you, do you want to magnetize to you exactly what you're worrying will happen? Do you want to draw towards yourself all the crap that you're most scared of? No. <laughs> Not at all. But perhaps we're doing that. And Dr. Joe Dispenza in his book, he would tell you that essentially you are. We're we're creating our own reality over and over again, our personal reality over and over again by the habits of the mind, by the habits of staying anxious, by the habits of constantly being in the state of stress, and by continuing to relive on repeat, on replay over and over and over again all of this bad stuff that happened to you. And then you continue to re-traumatize yourself and live and wallow in that. And then anything that happens to you just triggers that memory again. And you create the same story again. You create the same faulty belief. You create the same bullshit over and over and over again. We're like constantly triggering each other over again and again and again and then we get stuck in the loop and then we're creating a future that feels exactly like our past and that's a really disempowered way to live but he also goes on to say that if you're over the age of 35 you're screwed which by the way I'm 38 so I'm screwed and I I say that mostly to be funny but over 35 our software, our programming has become hardware. And in order to change that hardware, we have to get really clear about what we're doing in the moment by moment, how we're thinking, what we're 
continuously doing again and again what your faulty and bullshit beliefs and stories are that you keep replaying. We have to get really clear about that and see it from that one step back, that witnessing point of view in order to start to influence it, influence ourselves towards change. So the step one in learning how to master calm or master kindness or master being more compassionate or master being kinder to yourself, more self-love, all of those things, whatever you're trying to master, and by the way, I don't think mastery is really probably even the goal. It's just doing less of it. I don't know that I'm going to master anything in this lifetime, nor do I believe that we necessarily meant to master anything in this lifetime. That's why we're human. Going back to my point, though, whatever it is that you're trying to rewrite, override, begin again, create, create a new habit, create a new reality, whatever that is, you have to start from a deep, honest awareness of your current reality. I've always had this analogy in my head, like, if you are trying to create, I don't know, what are things people try to create? Weight loss or just a change of behavior, a change of habit, but you're not willing to look right in the face of your own stuff. You're not really willing to look at your behaviors and your um, crap and your stories and your constant, um, the constant bullshit, the same fight you've been having for your spouse with your spouse for the last 10 years, the same thing you're holding on to that your mother did 25 years ago. If you're not willing to look at the, the ways that you're hiding from yourself, the ways you're numbing, the ways you're creating an illusion, if you're not willing to say, here's my truth, it will be nearly impossible to move forward. It's like trying to get going on ice. You're just going to keep spinning your wheels because until we're grounded in our reality and our truth, you can't move forward. If you're in the shame closet about something, you can't move forward because it has to be brought to the light in order for you to then gain the traction you need to move. So step one, take a good hard look at yourself. And the best way sometimes to do that is to take a good hard look at the people around you that upset you the most, that push your buttons, the fight you keep having with your spouse, your siblings, your mother, your father, your grandmother, whoever your close people are, the things that you're most jealous of, most upset about, all of that stuff, that is the stuff that's going to tell you about yourself and where you have work to do, where you have work to heal. It's a really good start to just simply take a look in the mirror. And how do you do that? It's called metacognition. It's your ability to see yourself from that one step back point of view. It's your ability to see yourself from the point of view of witness. And in yoga, we do that all the time. You do that when you meditate. You do that when you maybe take a long walk out in nature. There are lots of ways that you can do that that aren't sitting in a chair meditating, though I highly recommend that. And I've got a whole other conversation we can have about meditation at another time. But the step is first just to, to employ your ability to see yourself more clearly without judgment. Because if you try to berate and be mad at yourself as well, that also is going to be really counterproductive. And that's also a bad behavior loop. So in order to break the behavior loops and to break the habit of, of being yourself, as Joe Dispenza calls it, in order to do that and to create transformation and change and evolution and level up, 
level up your spirituality, level up your humanness, level up your life, you have to get clear. And in order to get clear, you have to look at yourself. So mastering calm first comes by starting to acknowledge, hear, see, and feel what it feels like to be freaked out all the time. It's not easy work. And one of the things that's helped me, too, is to change my perception on what it is to be alive, what it is to be human, and to believe truly in my heart of hearts that our job here is to evolve, that our job here is to expand, grow, level up, work harder on healing our trauma, healing our experiences that have held us back, and allowing ourselves to see that maybe this is just a wild game. Maybe this really is just a dream. Maybe this is just an experience, an experiment in free will and choice in overcoming ourselves, um, overcoming our perception of reality, and learning to step back and be a little bit more compassionate, loving, and less taking things less seriously, choosing to see things not as the as intensely as we see them. And on the other side of that piece, the one thing I did forget to mention here is that on top of all of this the spiritual piece that can come out of it, the other thing that we're trying to do as parents, if you are a parent, or even if you manage a team of people, is that we're working to create an environment of learning and love and support that our children or the people that we mentor in any way will know how to make the right choice when they get to it. That when you get to the point where you're ready to make, um, you're faced with a difficult situation, that we're hoping that we've instilled in our children and our mentees the right attitude, the consciousness to make the right choice, but chances are, too, that, they, that we won't, that we have to make our own mistakes and that your children cannot necessarily learn to make good choices based on the reality that you probably made bad choices. You can tell them over and over again the things that you screwed up as a kid, but most of us have to live through things in order to really understand them. And so you might have to just allow yourself to trust that you've done your very best parenting that you've done your best to lay down a framework that your children will make the best decision. And then, I don't know, you cross your fingers, hold your breath, and see what happens. I can say this real nice, sitting pretty from this seat of having a a six-and-a-half-year-old whose most difficult decisions are what to say to the kid who punches her on the playground, which, don't worry, we're working on handling that. And, you know, what to say or do when someone you like is being picked on. That's where we're at. But these small decisions and these small opportunities to work through consent and also work through standing up for what's right, I'm hoping will lay the groundwork for teenage years. And I promise you, I will be freaking out at that point from the human perspective. And I'll be doing the thing I do all the time, which is to have a moment where I am, or many moments, where I'm really freaked out and I'm in the human fear space and I'm in my anger or my fear or my frustration or my sadness and I'm wallowing around in it. I take a lot of time to do that. Pity party for one, swirling in my own thoughts and head. But what I'm learning to do little by little, day by day, year by year, is to acknowledge those moments and then do my very best in the next 
breath, minute, day, or week to back up again, to remind myself that this is all part of the lessons, the learnings, the gifts of being human. Now, if you're still getting on board with this, go back to episode 10 or 11 and listen to my friend Rachel or my friend Lynn talk about this spiritual perspective and this idea that this is just largely a game. It does give me a little bit more space to have faith and trust that it's not all as real or as scary as I perceive it to be. And that if I can take that step back and look for the lesson, look for the opportunity, look for the growth, it's always there. Now remind me of this in another 9, 10 years when I've got a 15, 16, 17-year-old and I will, uh, I'll see how I'm doing then. I just think that the real question over and over again is, is what your lessons are for you. What are you working on and are you working on it at all? It takes a certain level of of awareness and willingness to wake up. You can stay asleep. You don't have to do this work. You can bumble along your whole life and learn a few things here and there and largely stay the same. I didn't understand that that's what people would want to do because that's never been my prerogative. I had no idea that people didn't want to grow. When a therapist told me that when I was like 18 or 19 years old, I was flabbergasted. I thought, Everyone was working to grow and evolve. Everyone was working to get better, do better, be better. That's not the case for everyone. And if you're in a place right now where you're just holding steady and you're not ready to surrender to some of these lessons of life, that's cool. The opportunity will always be here for us. The perspective shift will always be available to you. You always have the opportunity to find a little space from your reactions and We're all work in progress. So perhaps it's just simply not being so hard on yourself. Perhaps it's taking more time to just simply witness your experience. I recommend yoga or some sort of quiet practice that allows you to learn to be uncomfortable and also not run because numbing comes in a thousand places in a thousand directions in a thousand ways. And I think I've talked about this before and I'll probably keep talking about it. Even the most highly tapped in or evolved people I know struggle with their own numbing behaviors or being triggered by other people or wounds getting broken open. And I don't know anyone who isn't in this work in some way. And the people who say they're not, I don't even believe them that much. I think we've all got work. If you're on earth side, you're in earth school, you've got work. And part of your work is to figure out how you're numbing and then to stop doing it so much. That's it. I mean, there's a thousand ways and a lot of them are really socially acceptable and you can tell yourself all day long that you're just doing it for your health um, because a lot of the socially acceptable numbing behaviors are under the umbrella of health, but it's just another way to escape your power, your light. Anxiety is just a way to dampen your spirit and your light and your contribution. I know now that anxiety was one of my greatest guides to my own sensitivity and knowing. It's still one of my greatest guides and teachers. And now when I am feeling anxious or feeling depressed, I know that I am not listening deeply enough to what I know I need to do next or what I need to stop doing. I know that. Anxiety for me is now a flag 
that's being waved in my face that says, look deeper, look into the fear, look into the experience. There's something underneath this that you need to know and understand, that you need to see differently, that you need to be doing differently. So when I feel the most anxious, the most depressed, I know that I'm not honoring something that's screaming out from my soul. Had someone taught me that a long time ago, I probably wouldn't be as good of a teacher at this stuff as I am now. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm the, sh- the cat's meow here. But because of those experiences, I can relate to it in a way that maybe people who have never been anxious can't. Fear is, is a guide. And we need to start, as humans, start using it in a way that doesn't feel so much like we're using it against one another to, to wield power, but instead that we're using that fear as an opportunity to look inside, to ask more questions, to be curious, to do some introspective work, to look what's underneath it. For me, when I'm facing the fork in the road, I'm most anxious when I know I'm about to head in the wrong direction. I'm most anxious when I've not said the thing I knew I needed to say, when I said yes when I needed to say no, or I said no when I needed to say yes. Anxiety can be a beautiful opportunity for growth. And if your children are anxious, I think some of the best work is teaching them to look at what that means and also to teach them to not let it be the thing that stops them. There were so many opportunities I missed because my anxiety was so overwhelming. I missed all kinds of things, including several trips to Greece in high school because I was unwilling to face the fear. Now, some people say part of that, if there is fear or anxiousness, it's telling you no. I agree. Sometimes we need to teach our kids that that fear or anxiousness is that they're feeling contraction in their body, and it's a no, and we need to teach them to listen to that. But then there's the other kind of fear on the other side of that that's stopping you from doing something awesome because you're scared, because you're afraid of making a mistake, because you're afraid of failure, because you are afraid of shining brightly, because you're afraid of stepping into the spotlight, because you've been played to, told to play small your whole life. There's that whole experience too. And there is no one answer. So with our children who are sensitive and with ourselves as we have those sensitivities, we have to ask more questions. You have to be more curious to see what you can find underneath it because the information exists there. Your soul is whispering and sometimes screaming to you to listen. And the effort here in acknowledging how to master calm is also acknowledging how to understand your anxiousness and your fear. I'm sure I'll talk about this again a thousand more times in a thousand more ways, but I appreciate you listening. I hope that this is helpful. I hope that you can at least just start to be more curious and give yourself space both to freak out and also space to practice being called, to imagine those situations that stir you, trigger you the most. Imagine them in your mind's eye and prepare yourself to behave a different way. That's what we can do with our brain. So instead of using our imagination to stop us, instead of using our imagination to create what we don't want, to imagine and prepare us for what we don't want, let's start using our imagination to prepare us for what we do want. So when you imagine that your mother-in-law is coming for a visit, because she is maybe, and she's coming to stay with you, and instead of being triggered by the things she did 10 years ago, this is Joe Dispenza's example, instead of that trigger, you step into it and you imagine handling it better. Because we can intellectualize 
this truth all day long. You can intellectualize all the self-help books in the world. You can intellectualize yourself to death about how to be loving and kind, how to be more compassionate, how to lose weight, how to have more self-love, how to heal. You can read every self-help book ever. Believe me, I know because I've read most of them. But if you don't learn how to move that into your body, if you don't learn how to move that into your life, if you don't learn how to imagine actually putting that in action and becoming that version of yourself that you want to be, it just is information. That's the cerebral piece that we've been talking about. That's the head. That's the intellectual piece. That isn't dropping it into the body and being the loving, compassionate, kind person. That isn't being self-love. So instead of us continuing to talk about all the things that it takes to be self-aware, what you really need to do is take the information, intellectualize it, and then start imagining that you're using it. Start practicing using it little by little. Start catching yourself in the space of witness behaving badly and then attempting to switch it, apologizing for the shitty way that you acted again and doing better little by little. Create a new habit loop. That's such a huge piece, and I'm so glad I didn't forget to mention that, that it's really about deciding who you want to be, practicing that in your head. Your brain doesn't know the difference. This is science from a long time ago. Your brain can't tell the difference between who you are imagining to be and who you actually are. There's all kinds of tests that have proven that. This is what athletes do. They imagine how the game's going to go, how they're going to win the race, how they're going to react over and over and over again in their brain. And then when it comes to doing it, it's like they've already lived it. This is the heart of manifesting and attracting, is that you imagine the life you want to live so fully and deeply that you believe it with complete faith. And then it comes into fruition. Then you can allow it in. But most of us are spending too much time imagining what we don't want to happen and then wondering why we keep getting it. It's powerful. If you want more of this, if you want to get deep into the cerebral nature of this, get Dr. Joe Dispenza's book. If you want to just talk about this more with me or you have questions or I didn't answer something well or you disagree, send it to me. I'd love to keep talking about it. I'm still learning and unraveling and moving through this myself. And as soon as I learn more, I'll share more. Again, I appreciate you listening. If you enjoy this podcast and you like listening in, um, please subscribe it, share it. There's some great interviews that I did previously if you're on the path of trying to awaken and are curious about a deeper sense of spirituality, do listen to episode 10 and 11 and uh, more of where that came from. Thank you so much and I hope you guys have an awesome day and put some of this practice into play. I'm rooting for you as I keep rooting for myself to do the same work.